1: What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about legacy games. We're talking about games that get changed, that big things happen. You you rip up cards, you put stickers on, and we're talking to Jamie Stegmeier. He's got an incredible-looking legacy game coming out soon called Charterstone. I am super excited to talk to you about that. Jamie, welcome back to the show.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. uh, I'm excited to be back to talk with you, Gabe.
1: Yeah, man, I always love having you on the show. I think it's your fourth time being here, and I'm, I'm pumped man, because you have a really, really cool game. Tell me about Charterstone. Tell, if, if they've been living under a rock, tell people about what it is and all that good stuff.
2: So the, the bare bones idea of Charterstone is that it is a one to six player competitive legacy village building game where you are permanently constructing buildings in a shared village that can be used as worker placement action spots for all players. So it's kind of like in Lords of Waterdeep where you're building those those buildings where any player can use those buildings, but you get a benefit benefit maybe from building them or from ha- owning them, from having them, from running them. It's that type of thing.
1: Yeah, and so each game, yeah. the village progresses. Like it gets a little bit bigger, things change. Am yeah. I I'm remembering that right?
2: That's right. Yeah, yeah. You start off with an almost completely blank board and over a 12-game campaign, you are adding secrets to that board and unlocking a lot of content. And then at the end of the twelve-game campaign, you still have a fully functional worker placement game that you can play as much as you want.
1: Yeah, and so even at the end of the campaign, you still got a game that you can go back to and play. And it's the game that you, cre- you and Jamie Stegmeier are the designers of this game in a lot of ways, right? That's right. <laughs> well, well yeah. you are you are Jamie Stegmaier. You, the listener, are. Yeah. <laughs> and ja- there, we, there we go. That makes sense. Well, cool, right. man. And so I'm excited. Where did this idea come from? Like, where in the world did you go? Okay, I'm going to make a Euro Legacy game.
2: Well part of it is that i love euro games so when i uh, yeah I, I would say i love euro games and i also just happen to love legacy games um, playing risk legacy was one of the best gaming experiences i've ever had i love pandemic legacy and so when, once i had those two in my head and i knew that i like euro games so much i kind of wanted to bring a euro game into that legacy world um beyond that it was, like there are little Pop culture style inspirations along the way that maybe pick this theme or maybe pick this mechanism, but the overarching idea was just a love for Euro games and legacy games combined.
1: Yeah, and here's what's crazy. So when I'm working on a game, I can mm-hmm. go on YouTube and I can look up Dice Tower reviews and I can find 20 other games that are similar. You know, games that have a yeah. similar mechanic, similar theme, whatever. When you were doing this, I mean, it, there aren't any Euro legacy games. I mean, Gloomhaven is a dungeon crawl. Uh, Seafall is kind of a pick up and deliver seafaring combat game. Pandemic Legacy is pandemic. And so like, how in the world did you come up with this, this thing? And just kind of tell me more. Like I've read some of your design diaries. They're really cool. I'll put some links to those in the show notes, but tell me kind of more how this game came to be.
2: Well, part of it was that I was thinking about village building games. I haven't designed a village building game before, and it's a it's a style of game that I really, really love. I mentioned Lords of Waterdeep. I love that element. I love Aura at Labora. Um, I've really enjoyed Kalis, although I haven't played it much. But in, in all of these games where you're constructing buildings in a village, when you close up the game, those buildings go away. Like they're not there the next day when you open the game. But in real life, when you construct a building, hopefully when you wake up the next day, it's still there. Right. And all life's good. And so I wanted to kind of carry over that concept into a legacy game where you, where you build something and, and it's still it's still there the next day and the next day and it, and it means something for you and it means something for the other players as well.
1: Yeah. Okay. Have you played any village building
2: games, whether board games or video games?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you know, games like Suburbia and these games where you're putting the city together, and you're getting bonus points for putting buildings next to a park or having you know a whole bunch of blue buildings in the same you know zone and all that, and you kind of create this little little, little town. Right, it goes back to my days of playing Sim City way back, yeah. you know, on the yeah. computer Windows ninety eight maybe, you know, playing a uh, Sim City, yeah. and just what I love about it is you kind of put all these pieces together, and then you just sit back and watch it grow. That's kind of the cool thing of the video game. Well, the board game, you get to actually. Make it grow, you're part of that kind of process. And so, did like SimCity or any of those games give you some inspiration as well?
2: Yeah, there are. I, had, I played SimCity when I was younger. There are a lot of village building games, video games in particular, that have come out since then. And video games are almost the better analog than other, like, other village building board games. Because with most village building board games, you're building a lot of stuff within one session. Yeah. That doesn't work for the legacy game because you kind of need to spread out the building over a number of games or it's, or it's, too front loaded in the first couple of games. So with video games, with SimCity, like you might sit there for hours. You might come back to it on multiple days, and every day you're adding a new building or a new thing, or, or you're changing the infrastructure in some way. So that's a, a, a stronger parallel to, to how Charterstone works.
1: Yeah, and I tell you, one of my absolute favorite games of all time was Harvest Moon. And you're not building a village, <laughs> you're building a farm, you know, and you're, you're bringing yep. in animals and building crops and building crops, planting crops and building, you know. <laughs> Barns and all that stuff, and that was one of my favorite things in the world, and you're right, you just put so much time and effort and hours into it, and I even thought about, like, what if I made a Harvest Moon-style board game, it's like, yeah, but it wouldn't be that much fun, because you'd have to pack everything into an hour, and that's not the right. real enjoyment of it, and so the enjoyment's kind of like that long, you know, exploration and, and adventure and meeting the characters in the town and all that stuff, and so... Yeah. I'm excited, man, because Charterstone allows you to have that full you know experience. So is it twelve games like no matter what, or is that like the kind of the average?
2: Yeah, well, uh, games have done it in a different way. like Risk legacy had a essentially a fifteen game campaign, but there weren't like specific things happening each game. You would unlock stuff, you would trigger the unlocks yourself. Pandemic legacy, it's between twelve and twenty four games. You know like if you if you win a game, you continue to the next month. If you lose, you play one more game in that month, then you move on. In Charterstone, it is a specific 12-game story arc um, where at the end of uh, most games, not the first game, but the end of games 2 through 11, something specific is going to happen that lets players make a choice, and that choice impacts the next game. And so throughout every game, I've just kind of described it as like a double helix. So you have this straight story that's happening, but you, you are controlling these paths that surround that story for the 12-game for the campaign.
1: Gotcha. And, Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I think you've tapped into, people love opening those little boxes. Like, they love it. Oh, yeah. You know, I've, I've watched some playthrough videos of Seafall. This is back, like, I'm in Honduras. Getting a copy of Seafall in my suitcase was pretty much impossible. Like, it was just too big, <laughs> way too much, all that. And so I watched some playthrough videos. And I saw how when when players got to open those boxes, like that was the highlight. And then I watched some yeah. other playthroughs where they didn't, and it was like, oh, we didn't get to open anything. And it was kind of like a, you know, like they left the game on a down note because nothing new. It's like, oh, I guess we're just going to kind of do this again. And it's not that they were going to do it against bad, but people love opening stuff. And so, did that kind of influence your decision to make, you know, opening a box after every game? We're gonna we're gonna do that. Is that kind of the thing? The player psychology.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think you've had Rob Davi on the show. He's talking yeah. about how players, one of the, like one of the, the best moments in any game is when you first open the box of the yeah. game itself, that, that moment of discovery. And so he's tried to carry that over into, into his legacy games. And that was a big part of Charterstone. I, I didn't want just a couple boxes. I wanted a ton of stuff to open. Um, but this actually presented a big design challenge. In the game, because for a long time, I imagined all these things that you're unlocking as either tuck boxes or envelopes. So you, you have that, that feeling of ripping open an envelope and finding some stuff inside. Um, and that there would be a lot of them. There were, I think at one point, there were like 80 or 90 envelopes. In the oh. end, there are uh, 75 crates. And I use that term crate because what we found is that if, if we had tried to manufacture the game with 75 different envelopes, that had maybe two or three cards inside each one. Some of them might have better, bigger components, but most of them are just a few cards that the level of human error that would have happened at the factory to pack those envelopes would have been astronomical. Yeah. Um, hopefully most copies would have ended up okay, but probably at least one envelope in every copy would have had a mistake in it. And so what we ended up doing is, um, Like there's this big box of cards and every card has a unique number. And whenever you unlock a crate in the game, like if you unlock crate number 52, you'll look at a chart and 52 will say, okay, you get card 28, 300 through 310, and maybe this other special component that's somewhere else. And so using that system, you have that experience of unlocking something new and you can happen, you can do it a lot, but we eliminated that manufacturing concern of opening and stuffing a lot of envelopes and tuck boxes.
1: Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. It kinda of reminds me of time stories when you you know you get something new and it says take item twelve and you just go to the item deck, I go to number twelve and this is the card I have now, right? And so it takes right. away the potential for for players screwing it up because if somebody screws yeah. up you know, if they screw up game two in your in your game that's that's gonna go with them for the next ten games. You know, it's not like you can oh, go yeah. back and and it's not like you're gonna release an errata, you know, for, or a fact you know sheet that's like, hey, make sure you do this. It's like it kind of it's spoilers, you know, and so you, you want to eliminate that as much as possible.
2: That's my greatest fear, game actually. That <laughs> yeah. that player, like, because it's you're learning rules throughout the campaign. Usually, yeah. it's front loaded. Like, you learn most of the rules for the game in the first like five or six games. But if you miss one little thing, like you said that can impact every game that follows. And as a designer, there's nothing I can really do except do my best to really highlight the really important stuff. But beyond that, I, I'm just sitting there hoping that everybody follows those rules.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, we're talking about you know opening boxes, opening crates, uh, envelopes, that kind of thing. Let's talk about some more characteristics of a legacy game. What would you say are yeah. the just key points of a legacy game that if a game doesn't have these things, then it's not really legacy?
2: I mean the number one thing for me is is true permanence i think legacy is defined by permanence i don't know if i have the right to make that definition i'd I'd be curious to see what rob would say about that maybe he did say it on the show when he was with you before but yeah i i I, to to me it's about permanence that the psychological impact of making a change that you truly cannot undo otherwise i'd put it in the category of uh, either a campaign game or uh, a story game some some other category which isn't it isn't better or worse it's just different what would you say what what uh, a few keywords that you'd use to describe legacy
1: yeah i'm along the same lines it's it's got to be a sticker it's got to be ripping up a card it's got to be doing something where the game state permanently changes right that's the idea yep. of a legacy. You're leaving a legacy, you're leaving something behind yes. you know that yeah. that's different, that's changed, and whether you're talking about in your family or you're talking about a board game, that's kind of what a legacy is. You're leaving something behind. And so, you know, I've heard people talk about green legacy games. It's like, oh, it's it's a legacy game, but you can also like go back and redo a scenario, or you can go back and you know, pick A instead of B or whatever. It's like, well that's that's just a scenario game, it's a like campaign game like you're talking about. And it, it's probably it could be a really great game but it doesn't fit legacy in, in that way because if you're not changing the game, then yeah. it's not legacy, and so that's that's kind of how I feel.
2: And I think one one way to think about this, because um, I had a discussion with uh, Jr. Honeycutt, a developer. Has he been on your show? You he did, he came
1: on and talked yes. about development, yeah.
2: Okay, so jr's developed, he worked on Seafall, he spent a weekend with Charterstone, um, and so we had a chat about it, and one thing that came up was the idea that the game remembers what happened beforehand. Right. Uh, and legacy games do do that, but I, I think there are other categories of games that can remember. And those, like Mechs vs. Minions is a campaign game where you're opening a new envelope every game, adding new content to the game, so the game is remembering things that happened before, and it's adding new content in the future, uh, which I think is a wonderful format. It's just not, it's not a legacy game.
1: Yeah, I remember, you know, Mice and Mystics or some of these other campaign games, they have systems to save the game state, you know, when you're going from A to B or, you know, chapter 1 to chapter 2, and so you don't have to just play all 10 chapters in a row. You have a, a save system, but that's not legacy, because it, it's not necessarily permanently changing the game. If you wanted to kind of go back and go, like, oh, let's redo chapter 3, because we didn't do very well. So let's redo right. that one. So any, any other characteristics that you would say? Do you have to have a little, you know, crate system, a little envelope or box system to open up new things, or is there another way? Is there other ways you thought about doing that, or of introducing new content?
2: Well, that's a good question, because there are so few legacy games out there right now that I think we probably just touched on the tip of the iceberg of what they could be. Um, Charger Stone definitely has stickers. It has uh, naming, like you're writing on cards, you're naming cards, you're, you're scratching off things, there's you know, scratch-off cards in it, and uh, there's there's one special component in the game that I can't mention, but I think it's pretty cool, and it's once you use it, you can't use it again. Mm-hmm. But uh, one thing that we that I did do a little differently that is that I... I never advocate ripping up cards in Charterstone. Uh, when you when you take like a sticker off a card and you're done with that card, I have players put it in what I call the archive and essentially they're ripping up the card. but I have them not do that because just in case they miss something on that card that they need to go back and refer to, then I'm, I've kind of created this system where they still have that card remnant just in case. Yeah. hopefully that will never need to be used. But I feel like once you rip up a card it's your instinct to just throw it away. And I don't want players to have to fish through the waste basket just in case they need to refer to that card again.
1: Yeah, for sure. Now have you thought anything as far as like going digital with, with legacy style games where you have an app that the app remembers what rules have been in play or what event, you know, or I'm thinking about Robinson Crusoe when you know, when you run into a tiger and then the tiger's gonna show up again, he's mm. gonna be in that event deck, he's gonna be there. But right, having a right. legacy style game where like from one game to another, that tiger's still wandering around your campsite or something like that. Have you thought about any kind of digital way to do this?
2: Well, I don't want to fully answer that. Uh, Okay, so I'll answer it a few ways. One is that I think uh, the the Portal game is about Mars is kind of doing that. Okay. I haven't played it yet. I forget the name. Uh, First Martians. First Martians. So it uses an app um, to remember stuff and to, I think, generate random events that remember previous events. Um, But I also mentioned that caveat because... As we talk about this stuff, like there are some things that might happen in Charterstone that involve maybe something like what you just said, or maybe not. I can't really say. But <laughs> we might yeah, we'll we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: We'll talk we'll talk a year from now when everybody's played yeah. it, and then we can worry yeah. not worry about spoilers. Oh well, cool, man. All right, so let's talk about the expected challenges. I mean, you've talked to Rob, you've talked to Isaac Childers, who did Gloomhaven, you've talked to people who have made legacy games. You had a pretty decent idea going in like probably how much work it was going to take. Maybe not fully grasp it, but you had an idea that it was going to take forever and maybe some ideas on playtesting and all that. But let's talk about those expected challenges, and in a minute we'll talk about what came along that you didn't expect. So what happened that you just kind of figured would happen and it worked out the way people had told you it would?
2: Well, I I was fortunate in some ways because, like you said, I had – Rob is great at, at appearing on podcasts and he's often on uh, the, the game design uh, roundtable podcast. So I had listened to pretty much everything he talked about legacy games. So I was psychologically prepared for uh, a long design and development process. I was prepared for a unique uh, prototyping process because you have to, like I can't actually make sicker cards. I have to have people like taping stuff and cutting stuff out and how that might impact a, a play test. One thing that he talked a lot about was, Focus on getting the first game right, like make make sure the core game itself is fun and functional and then work your way through the other games rather than trying to design all the games up front. I think some authors might do this when they write a book. They might have like plot points that they want to hit. They might have an outline of things they want to happen, but uh, but they focus on getting the core characters right before moving forward. So I was kind of prepared for all that stuff. Yeah, how is long, there anything that you've heard Rob talk about? Oh yeah, go, go ahead.
1: Going, how long was that development process? How long did it take you to kind of put it all together?
2: Yeah, from uh, from the the first brainstorming sessions all the way through the end of the development was about 18 months. Wow. Working on it essentially full-time, like a, as a full-time game design.
1: Yeah, so if you were doing this part-time, three years? And that's what happened with Seafall,
2: yeah.
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. It also happened with Seafall. This is the first time anybody ever tried this. <laughs> With a brand new, you know, not doing it on top of another game. With Risk Legacy, it's risk, right. but with some legacy elements. Pandemic's pandemic with some okay. legacy elements. But Seafall was just – and that's one thing, you know, Rob, he, he's talked about in the past about how certain things he wished he had done differently. He'd go back and change, right. different processes and all that. And it's like, man, you were, you were cutting edge. Like, you were on the yeah. – this is a brand new thing. You were the first one to figure this out. So even if it had been a giant catastrophic failure, which it wasn't, Seafall's was still a decent game, but even yeah. if it had been awful – it still would have been a giant step forward for board games and what everything's going to come after it is going to be thanks to the work he did there. And just us being able to learn from him, we get to learn from his mistakes. Right. And so, Oh yeah. Yeah. And, but going back to what you're saying about authors, you know, I've written some books and one thing I've learned writing books is it's very dangerous to go in knowing exactly what you want to happen. Right. And and, and, cause sometimes you get really bogged down. You're like, gosh, I don't know how to make this work. And, And so it's better to go in with an outline, have a general idea and you know, you want this to happen by chapter four and this to happen by the end and all that. But to let the characters kind of go where they want and do some things and and this also goes back into why it's important to write a lot is because you can write multiple versions maybe and have some different options. The same thing with games, you know, the more you work on it, the more you can kind of let the game go where it wants to go. And so I think that's that's really good advice for anybody wanting to put together, whether you're just doing a campaign game or you're doing a straight up legacy game is, is, don't get so pigeonholed into this has to be a certain way. Like, let the game kind of do what it wants. You're still the designer, you just have to rein right. it in. But yeah, just kind of let it flow and go that way. Is that kind of how you did with Charmstone?
2: Yes, absolutely. And in a way, uh, a parallel there, there is that the characters are often the playtesters, they're the players. So letting them have the freedom to explore the past that they want to while still uh, making sure that I retain control of. Of something, some semblance of, of something, so the game remains balanced by game twelve, even though it might swing a little bit from from unbalanced to to balance throughout the campaign.
1: Yeah. Now, did yeah. you did you talk to Rob or anybody else about the possibility of kind of runaway leaders? Because if you're running away in game six, mm-hmm. it could be difficult for people to catch up by game twelve. And so, did you run any of those kind of challenges?
2: Yeah, and kind of like you said, I, I'm fortunate to have rob's legacy games to learn from i i played all them um and uh, and seafall actually was pretty instrumental in that he has a a catch-up mechanism in seafall for the for the leaders and and the people who are falling behind in charterstone it's a pretty basic mechanism where if you if you win a game you you are rewarded for having the most points in that game you get a little end of campaign bonus for for winning that game but all the other players who didn't win the game get to add to their capacity which means that they can carry over more stuff from game to game so as the leader is getting more points that they can contribute to the end game every other player is preparing themselves to do better in the next game and all the games that follow so And that actually, I figured that out pretty early. I was fortunate to figure that out early. And that system works out pretty well in Charterstone.
1: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And this is some, a thing where maybe legacy games have a bit of an advantage over normal games is that <laughs> you can set up. You know, normally, if, if Steve is just dominating at Catan or something like that, well, we're going right. to play again and he's going to dominate again because he's really good at right. Catan. Like, I'm, I'm, I have no advantage going into the second game. Everything gets right. wiped clean. And so that's a really cool system. Did you try anything else before that system, though?
2: That system was in there pretty early. I think the thing that changed was exactly how the end of campaign winner was going to be determined and how much transparency I wanted to give players up front. And what I found more and more, this was kind of a surprise to me, um, despite all the uncertainty in a legacy game, players really wanted to know very early in the campaign how they could win eventually, even though they wouldn't know what like how to win game, they wouldn't know how to win game seven, but they would know that the game seven win would be important for that end game campaign, things like that. Uh, so that was something like more and more where I started out with like giving players complete uncertainty and just letting them discover everything. I moved away from that and, and gave them certain information that they actually, that they did want to know up front.
1: Yeah, and I think that even carries over to life. You, you need a scoreboard. Yeah. You need to know what winning <laughs> looks like. Yeah. You know, And that's one thing that makes sports so easy as far as yeah. parallels. It's because you, you know what winning is. I have more points than you at the end of the game. I win. Like It's just super simple. Now, when you're talking about life, when you're talking about your kids, your family, your job, it can be difficult to understand, like, what is the score? Like, how how do I know if I'm winning with my kids? You know, and sometimes that can be hard to to discern. But in a game, people want to know what the scoreboard is. You know, that's one of the most prominent things in a rule book. This is how you win. In a co-op game, this is how you lose. Like, it's important to know those things. And so I'm interested because, all right, so you're saying you tell people kind of, the gray area, like this is kind of how to win, but you're saying right. it gets a little more specific for certain games, is that how it works?
2: Well, that, that kind of evolved over the design process. Like at this point, the final version of the game, uh, you're told, I, I believe up front in game one, what all the points mean. Yeah, every, every player has a little box where they keep all their stuff, it's called a, a chartered chest, and on that box it shows you get this many points, for having this thing uh, there are three different things in the box it shows you how you get all the points on that there's a point on every uh building that you construct in your charter so at the end of the campaign you'll look at all the buildings in your charter you'll add up all those points that's described in game one um i think there's one other thing that i'm forgetting here but i think even that's described in game one too so in in the end it, all that information ended up being up front because playtesters seemed seem to really want it they wanted to know it
1: yeah, but then you're adding new buildings, new new ways to score all all along, right? right?
2: Yeah, I guess that's one thing that re- remains uncertain. Like the buildings you have in the first game are worth one point at the end of the campaign. What I don't tell players is what the biggest scoring building in the game is. They have to discover that for themselves. So there's still a little bit of an element of uncertainty there.
1: Yeah, very cool, man. All right, so let's, let's kind of switch gears. Let's talk about unexpected challenges. Those are some things you expected going in thanks to Rob and other people. What hit you yeah. out of nowhere? What, what did you encounter? You're like, oh, I didn't expect this at all.
2: Well, one of the biggest things that, that comes to mind is, uh, in, especially in terms of the playtesting process, was uh, how much blind playtesting we would do instead of local playtesting. So I, the local playtesting for me was mostly focused on game one and two. Because games one and two, even though there's a lot of discovery in those games, it's mostly about just playing the core mechanisms of the game. Uh, but what I realized is that I, uh, like when I locally play test, I'm usually playing the game. Not everybody does that. Some people will just watch the play test. I like to be a part of the game. I, I need to have that feel for it. And I know all the surprises in Charterstone. So that element of discovery, I, I can't have that. I can't experience that. I need to rely on other people to have that element of discovery. So one of the things that really will probably make me not design another legacy game in the future is that I really missed being able to have to, to play test the game as much as I wanted myself in addition to all the blind play testing. Whereas in Charterstone, I just, for huge gaps of time, I just had to send it off the blind play testers and see what their thoughts were instead of experiencing that for myself. So that was, that was unexpected and, and, and harder than I thought. I wanted to be there to, to, to play all those games throughout the entire campaign. But I, I, I can't. I, I, I know everything that happens in the game.
1: Right. And so it's that curse of knowledge. Like you can't yeah. you can't unknow that this building's gonna yeah. come up next game and so you're gonna hold off and wait on it or whatever it is. Yeah, it's it's impossible to do that. You could pretend I guess, but then you're not getting the full experience. And but I think you make a great point. Playtesting it locally in and even, you know, with you in in part of those playtests for the first and second game, I think is is a awesome idea just a real because like you're saying earlier it's so important to get that first game right the first couple games right because that's when people are really deciding do i like this game you know normally they play it one time and they go i like it or it's going on the trade pile whatever that's just kind of the cult of new age that we live in right and so with a with a legacy game if you're thinking okay this is going to take 12 games after that first one if you're not feeling pretty good about it you're like i don't know i don't know if i want to devote 11 more to this and so getting the first yeah. one right is so important just play your psychology and it, it's across all mediums I was talking to a guy or listening to a podcast something, I remember a while back a guy was talking about movies and he was a screenwriter yeah. and he said you've got six minutes you have six minutes to hook the viewer in because in the first yeah. six minutes they are determining do I really want to sit here and watch this or do I want to change the channel or do I want to go to another Netflix movie whatever it is wherever you're watching it maybe if you paid for it at the theater you're going to sit there because $12 it's like ah, I'm going to get my money out of it but you right. said you got six minutes. It might be a three hour movie, but you got six minutes to get them hooked in. And I think with a game, it, it can be, I don't know, I think you got a little longer than six minutes because it usually takes more than six minutes to learn the rule book. But, uh, right, right. and let's actually, so let's talk about that. What challenge did you run into with the rule book? And maybe some were expected, maybe some unexpected, but what, what'd you run into?
2: Yeah, you may have read some of the, about this on the design diary, because yeah. a lot of stuff happened with the rule book, um, partially inspired by Seafall. So one of the things I love about risk legacy in particular is that you have this rule book and there are these big holes in the rule book where you're placing stickers, you're applying new rules throughout the game. But in game one, like you said, it's pretty much just risk. You don't have to learn very much at all. So the challenge of design for me, in my opinion, the challenge of a legacy game that's based on a whole new game is not having a giant rule, having very streamlined rules and then add to those rules throughout the process. And this was a, a. I've talked to Rob about this. I think this is the thing that happened with Seafall. Seafall started out with a massive rule book, and then you added to this massive rule book. Yeah. And so as I was I was the one in our group who learned Seafall, and on those like hours that I spent learning the game, that's when I decided that I didn't want Charger Stone to have any rule book at all. Mm-hmm. I wanted to start off completely blank and that you'd add rules as you go. What I discovered, though, this is one of those things that along the way, so it, conceptually, I love that idea. Blank rule book. You don't have to learn anything in advance. You just sit down and start playing. But uh, Charterstone is like a medium-weight Euro game. And I think throughout playtesting, I realized that it benefited from having some core rules for players to learn and understand in advance. Very basic, but core rules. And then to add that rulebook as they go. So the final version of the rulebook is only four pages of rules. And within those four pages are big holes. So it's about like two and a half actual pages of rules. So very slim, very short, very Core elements to understand, and then you add to it as you go. But I, it was interesting throughout the process, seeing like what playtesters responded to, like what well, was too much, too many rules, too few rules.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, two two and a half pages of rules is is nothing. I mean, that is like yeah, so few rules. I mean, I've, my kids, my daughter has a game that's like for her age, her age group. I feel like has more than two pages of rules. You know, and so <laughs> yeah. So how would you how would you rank it as far as like compared to VidiCulture in the weight?
0: Uh
2: the. I would say Charterstone hits viticulture level complexity around game four or five. Mm-hmm. Maybe like midway through the campaign. For game one, it's uh, a little simpler than Lords of Waterdeep, around Lords of Waterdeep wait. And then by the end of the campaign, i compare it to like a Kalis or an Oral at Labor, which are kind of he- not extremely heavy Euro games, but fairly, like, medium heavy weight Euro games.
1: Yeah, so that's really cool. It's another thing I think it, Legacy Games had an advantage on. You can ramp up the complexity. Oh, yeah. You know, you don't have to throw yep. this giant 40-page rule book at somebody. You can right. throw them a two-page rulebook and let it slowly, they learn the game, and then you add another rule, and then they learn the game. It's kind of like with sports. You know, when you're doing t-ball, yeah. you're not teaching kids how to turn double plays and sack flies <laughs> right. and, like, all these different things. You're saying, hey, here's a ball. Here's a bat. Hit it you know, and that's that 's where right. you start right and so and then as you play more, you add more rules you, and football same good lord there 's so many rules in football by the time you get to the <laughs> nfl it 's insane, and so if you try to do that right. at the beginning it would it 's a waste of time and so it 's a really cool yeah. advantage legacy games have over this, but also what did you do as far as does does the game have a bunch of new ideas, or do you kind of rely on some expectations of, okay, this is kind of how you play Lords of Waterdeep. It's very similar. If you play Lords of Waterdeep, you'll be able to play Charterstone. Is that kind of thing? Or did you add a bunch of new uh, mechanisms that people hadn't really done before?
2: Uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, it does have uh, – it has a connection to other Euro games. It's a, it's a worker placement game um, where you're – one of the things I brought from one of my own games was that you can bump workers. So there's no true blocking in the game you can you 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 bump someone's worker back to them and it saves them a turn of having to retrieve their workers so there's I would say in the core mechanisms, there's a lot borrowed from other games. It's in mostly the the legacy elements where the where the unique stuff comes out, the innovative stuff, yeah, I would say that's true,
1: yeah, and I think that's the smart way to do it because you've already got so yeah. much going on that's new and the legacy elements and all that to have this. This game full of all these other innovations, it's just, right. it's just probably too much, you know? And so uh, I think that's probably, if you're if you're out there listening and you're designing a legacy game, don't feel like you've got to do a whole bunch of new stuff, because you're already yeah. doing new stuff if it's legacy, because again, there's like five of these on the market. And so uh, don't feel like you got to have all these brand new mechanisms and ideas that no one's ever done before. I mean, it's almost yeah. like if, had you done deck building the legacy game as the first one, it's like, whoa, whoa, what's, what are you doing? Just just do deck building. It's fine. It's okay. That's enough new stuff. Are any other unexpected challenges or, or things you ran into?
2: I mean, there's tons of stuff I learned along the way. One, like li- this, isn't a huge thing, but one little thing I learned from actually Jr's the weekend that Jr. Honeycutt spent with the game was um, at the time there wasn't a lot of stuff to name, and there wasn't really a core story to the game. And uh, I walked away from his feedback realizing how 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 much stronger the game could be if players a had that ownership over the the people who were occupying the village and put by putting the names on those cards and by having a much stronger story from ranging from game one to game 12. And I had gone into it thinking, okay, I want players to make their own story. And that's still the case. You're still building your own village, but um, there's also now like a plot. There's, there's a mystery to the game and uh, JR's feedback really had a big impact on me putting that in the game.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. So it's got normal, you know, natural emergent stories going on where yeah. people choose different buildings and different towns, but then it's also got this, this kind of narrative to it as well. Was that was that difficult? Because, I mean, Eurogames don't have narratives. <laughs> they just... That's true, kind of, so yeah. How, was it difficult to kind of put that in there?
2: I would say it was actually fun. Uh, I mo- One of my childhood dreams was to be a, a fiction writer someday. I loved the idea of writing novels and, and short stories and whatnot. So um, it was a nice excuse to, to take some of those skills and uh, have some fun with it and put that in the game. Um, it was a challenge. I, I said the challenge came from making... It all interesting without it being unbalanced or unfair to players because it's it's hard to design for so many different um, types of players and scenarios as with all these branching paths that can happen in a legacy game. So that part was tough, but but the, coming up with the story itself was was just fun.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess honestly, this is another place where a legacy game might have an advantage. You can have a euro game yeah. with a story because you can go from you know chapter to chapter, or game to game. And have other yeah. things going on, whereas normally in a Euro game it would just be superfluous. Like it's like what? Like is this is too much going on. Right. But in this, with the ramp up, you can kind of put that in there, and so that's that's really cool, yeah. man. Any um, any other unexpected things you run into?
2: Those were the those were the big ones that come to mind. I don't know if anything you've read some of the design diary. Did any, anything else pop out that you wanted me to talk about? I mentioned mm-hmm. there.
1: Yes, but let's let's actually move on to the next okay. thing I've yeah. written down: playtesting. So. Playtesting is a challenge no matter what. You, you could be designing yeah. the next version of Uno, and you're going to run into playtesting challenges. And so what were the challenges yeah. in playtesting that you expected or, or didn't expect any of those kind of things?
2: So Charizard, like like we talked about, it's a 12-game campaign, right? Um, I had previously t- uh, run the blind playtesting for Scythe. Mm-hmm. And for that, we kind of brute-forced it. We found as, I, I found as many people as possible to blind playtest it, and I just wanted them to playtest it over and over again with different factions, different player mats, we ended up with over a thousand blind playtest sessions and all that data was hugely instrumental in balancing the game or trying to balance it. Um, but Charterstone was a little different because I needed players to commit to a 12 game campaign within a short amount of time, which is a big commitment for, for any game, much less a, a raggedy prototype. <laughs> and so, and it had to be, have surprises. So it's not something that they could create at home. So, uh, the biggest thing that stood out to me in, in hindsight is how really expensive it was to do this because a, I had, I mean, I could have done this myself, but it took a lot of time. So I hired, I hired someone to build the prototypes and then we had to mail those prototypes to the play testers. And because I was essentially asking play testers to do a job for me, they were play te- They were doing this thing with a commitment over a short period of time. Um, I paid them to do it. So, I, I mean, this is, we're talking like thousands of dollars over the course of four waves of blind playtesting to build all the prototypes to play the playtesters, um, and so it it in the end I think it was worth it. But it was uh, I think this is one of the big hurdles to having anyone who wants to design a legacy game that you have to get that commitment from from other people to have them play through the entire campaign or play through a significant chunk of it, and uh, and to build those prototypes, it's, it's expensive.
1: Yeah, definitely. Now, how long did the playtesting process last?
2: Each wave was, I believe, three weeks. I think I gave playtesters three weeks to play through uh, 12, 13 games because I wanted them to play one post-campaign game. And usually I would spend the next week after that just being depressed at how far it had to go. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would learn from all that information and process it and local playtest a few games and then put it back out there. So the blind playtesting, it's... Started, I think, in, in November and went through uh, March or April. It's so about four or five months of that, just repeating that process. And that was all preceded by some de- development where I paid guys like JR Honeycutt to spend a weekend with the game and and just uh, play as many games as they could and give me feedback about it. Yeah. So that that even happened. That preceded blind playtesting.
1: Yeah, it's something I heard Ignacy Chebyshek talk about a while back with First Martians. And because uh, yeah. he had it with him in the States and he was at some convention and somebody came up and said, Hey, uh, are you going to uh, be showing that game? Or are we going to do any play testing? And he announced, he said, it's in the hotel room, but I, I'm afraid, like I'm afraid to bring it down here to play test because you're going to tell me there's things wrong with it. And I don't want to hear that right <laughs> now. Like I can't, I can't deal with that right now. And so yeah. we're not going to play it. And I was like, yo, that's, that's fair. Because you know, he went to war yeah. with that game and you went to war with Charterstone for a long time and just trying to figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Now, as far as playtesting, did you you said the the different waves? How many waves did you have? Like, did you get feedback and then make another iteration and then send that to a new group of playtesters, or how did that work?
2: Yeah, so it was it, the, yeah. Every wave was was me sending it out to you. I, I tried to have one playtest group at each player count, um, except for for one player that was done later. So two through six, uh, so five different lead playtest groups uh, for each session, and they would fill out form like they would give me data about the game, a lot of anecdotal feedback, and then oftentimes they would videotape one or two sessions so I could watch players learning the game. I learned that from Rob and, yep. and Matt Leacock as well. Um, that was actually really tough. Have you ever watched a videotape of people playing your games?
1: No, you, man. I, I'm not on that level yet. Like maybe one day, but no, I haven't. So,
2: yeah, let's talk about that. What does that look like? It's nerve-wracking. It's <laughs> really, really nerve-wracking because there's this like moment of joy where you're like, oh, these, other people, these people are playing my game, but... You have no control over it at all. You're yeah. you're completely helpless and you're watching players make mistakes that are completely your fault.
1: Yeah.
2: Most of the time your fault, so not always, but often. Uh, so it's painful. Like it's something that it was so painful. I don't know if I'll do that that often again, but it was really helpful for that for the first game of a legacy campaign to watch people learning those rules. It, it, it was very, very helpful. Um, but mostly I just like written feedback.
1: Yeah. yeah. Now, any any advice for somebody who's wanting to do the filming of a playtest? Any advice on how to watch the film? That's one thing. When I was in high school, yeah. we watched lots of film playing football, but a lot of times yeah. we didn't really know what we were watching. It's like, okay, uh, I <laughs> I missed that block. I shouldn't miss that block next time. I give us down a basic, and then I got to college, and the coaches like showed us how to really watch film. And so, teach yeah. me, teach me how to really watch film on this stuff.
2: Well, part of it is the instruction of how you tell play playtesters to even set it up in the first place. Um, And one thing I learned there is that audio is actually more important than the visual element of it Like if I can if I can see everything, but I can't hear anyone then it's almost useless Hmm. Uh, Like if there are kids running if you had your kids running around in the background yelling playing and watching TV It's really hard to focus on on me watching players play the game So the audio is really key and I also learned that um, actually being able to see the board was more helpful than seeing the players Hmm which ideally there would be two cameras, one for the players, one for the board. But no, I don't think any playtester is going to be able to set that up. Um, so given the choice, I would rather see pieces moving around on the board um, rather than seeing players. Because I can get the player reactions later. I can hear that from the lead playtester. But if I'm not understanding what's happening on the board, it's not not all that helpful.
1: Yeah, and then do you just watch it on like one and a half speed or how do you watch it?
2: Yeah, I watch it as quickly as possible <laughs> to get it over with. So, <laughs> you yeah. Know,
1: you don't back, you know, get a bunch of bags of popcorn and just like sit on the couch with a cozy blanket and just have a have an no. evening.
2: <laughs> no, it is isn't, it isn't the opposite of entertaining. No. No, no you just,
1: you should get online like eHarmony or something and like <laughs> yeah. make it a date night. Hey, uh, I got this really yeah. cool video you you should watch and just invite people over and you know.
2: <laughs> no, not does doesn't sound good. No, no, it, it's just painful. But <laughs> yeah, and usually I want to take a lot of notes while I'm doing it yeah. too.
1: Gotcha. Well, let's talk yeah. about that. What notes? What do your notes look like? Like, how do you take notes when you're watching that stuff?
2: When I was watching the videos, a lot of it was rule based. Like, I'd be I'd be looking for places where they mess up the rules or where they do something un- un- unintuitive, and I'd usually make a note. Or even like, I have two computer screens. so I might have the rules open on one screen, the video open on the other, and I would just pause the video and just immediately just correct it in the rules. That's that's something that's easy to do if it's just a a confusion. And then I'd write down the stuff that I needed to process, like the stuff that uh, moments where they weren't having fun, moments where um, something didn't work the way I thought it would, those things that I need to process later and that would have an impact on the gameplay that I need to actually fix, not just like a typo, things like that, I would save for later so I could process them. Gotcha.
1: All right, so help me understand how, you mentioned this just a moment ago, you have a solo mode for Charterstone. Yes. So Morton yeah. who's come on the show in the past and talked about how he makes these really cool so Automa, am I saying that right, yeah. Automa, um, systems yeah. for your games and for other games he's got the new, the Gaia project and like Terra Mystica yeah. space version. Like I'm really excited to see how he did that because that's crazy. But how in the world did Morton create a solo mode for a legacy Euro game?
2: It's it's a feat. I am I'm incredibly impressed that he was able to pull it off. Um, And it was actually even I made it even more difficult because I asked him not just to make a solo mode, but to make a solo mode where or in Altama that you could play against. If you're playing like a two player game or a three player game or anything less than six players that you could have in a a bot, essentially an intelligent seeming bot uh, play for some of the inactive charters. Now, it isn't necessary at all. I have an automated system in the game so that you don't need to do that. You don't need to have that but I needed him to make a system simple enough that players who are not familiar with solo games at all could use it. So uh, you might have to ask him exactly how the design process of how he did it. But uh, the core result is that you on the Automa player's turn, you draw a card. That card tells you which charter they're going to place a worker in. And the only function of the worker is to either occupy a spot or to bump a worker off a spot. That's the only function. You don't have to like gather resources for the worker. You don't have to gather coins or give them points um, based on where they're placed. And on the card itself, it also gives them something. So it might give them, the card might say, okay, the automobile player gets two points this turn. It's not connected to anything they're actually doing, but it's just meant to keep them competitive throughout the campaign or throughout the game. So they might get two points. They might get a reputation. They might get coins or something but it's it's not based on the building itself because there's no way Morton could predict which buildings are placed where in in on the in the charter.
1: Yeah. Another thing I love about it and then tell me if I'm not remembering this right, but if if yeah. I'm if I've got a group of 4 and one person can't be there, oh yeah. I can use yeah. the autonomous system for that person and he he doesn't really miss a beat necessarily. I think that's a really cool way to do it. And so yeah. where did that idea come from?
2: Yeah, that that was uh something we kind of stumbled upon throughout the design process that that uh like there's a certain commitment that goes with a campaign or a legacy game that you get the same people and you play the game, you know, twelve times over the span of a few months. And sometimes, like you said, someone just can't show up one night. Or maybe they can't even make the first session, but they know they can make the second session. And so to give that player a chance to allow their charter to continue to grow and for them to still feel competitive, we thought we'd we'd let the autonomous system substitute for that player for a single game. It again, it isn't completely necessary. You can if you miss a game, you, you'll miss out on those points from that game, but the other players could just give you like the lowest score of the, the other the player in the previous game, things like that. But if you want, the Automa is there to, to represent you when you're when you can't make it.
1: Yeah, and so does the Automa like add stickers to the board and stuff too?
2: Yeah, the automata it it uh, it builds buildings, it unlocks stuff, it yeah. It, we tried to still keep it really streamlined. Like we wanted an automatic turn to take no longer than a regular player's turn, and I think I think Morton accomplished that.
1: Yeah, and so another cool thing is if you've been playing a few games and somebody is like, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. They can do that, yeah. and it doesn't ruin it for everybody else. Or maybe Steve has just been a jerk last week, and he's just not allowed to play, and so you're going to replace <laughs> him with the bot, and it's more enjoyable right. experience that could happen as well. So I think that's a really cool system that you come up with. Uh, is that something you're going to hopefully do in in other games, is like how like what have you learned from that that you're going to apply maybe to your next game?
2: Well, really, the one thing I've learned so far is that um, it, what I thought was very clear in the rulebook. So, so right now, basically, there are some reviewers who are playing Charterstone, and I've got emails from some of them with questions. And what I'm finding is that uh, a few of them thought that they needed to play with Altama. It's very clear in the rules that you don't need to play with Altama. You you, you don't need to do it. But a few of them thought you did. And so uh, and that's kind of a, an extra hurdle to go through. You have to learn this new rule set just to play with Automa. So the main thing I'm taking away from this is that I need to make it very, very clear in the rules that if we have an Automa system like this, I need to make it clear when you should use it, when you shouldn't use it, and that it's not necessary in most scenarios. I, I still think it's pretty clear in the Charterstone rulebook, but with. <laughs> A few guys have messed it up so far. So yeah. it, it probably is not, not as clear as it needs
1: to be. Right. Well, this is something I had a uh, guy on the show a few weeks ago. We talked about player psychology and learning rule books and how yeah. certain things you just skip over. You don't mean to. Like my brain, I, yeah. I'm learning a rule book. I just like skip over rules without even noticing and even realizing that I did it. And so maybe yeah. those reviewers are just like me. And so well, let's talk about that. You had Rodney Smith do a Watch It played? video yeah. for charterstone like that first game i think that was really a good idea and so kind of what made you want to do that because i know a lot of people are using Rodney now to kind of do those videos and it's working really well but what made you get off the fence and hire him to help you out
2: yeah uh, i i've worked with rodney for a few games and uh charterstone in particular i thought would be really really important for it I, I as soon as i decided like we were talking about the rule book how it was originally no rule book and then some rule book um, once I realized how important it was for players to understand those core concepts going into the first game, I knew I wanted Rodney on board for it. Um, so that way, players can watch that video in advance, have a core understanding of the game. It's not a complicated game if you get those core concepts. And that, that way, they can just jump right into game one. They don't need to read through the rule book at all, really, before they begin the game.
1: Yeah, and people learn so differently. Some people just don't do well yeah. with rule books. And so, if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I don't have the money to hire Rodney, and that's cool make your own video like find oh, yeah. somebody that has a good voice and doesn't stutter or stumble through things and get set up a good little setup where it looks good and the lighting's is good and, all that. and make your own and you can do that yeah. for you know not that expensive and so i think it's a good way to supplement things. i've seen a lot of people have like qr codes on the box or on the rule book and say hey if you're struggling there's yeah. a 10 minute video you can watch hit the qr code you'll go straight to our website i think that's a really cool way to do that as well And so, all right, let's talk about what you've learned in general that you're going to carry forward. You talked about you're probably not going to make another legacy game. This is it. You know, you can check that off the bucket list. But what have you learned from this process that you're going to take on when, you know, and you're probably already working on more games. And so what are you going forward and going, okay, I'm really glad I learned this. I can carry it forward for the next one.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, we may need to have another discussion in a few months because it will be interesting to see how, how this answer evolves as I hear from players and reviewers and things like that. Um, I've had some distance between when I ended the game and I'm, I'm playing the, the final game campaign now myself We'll be playing games seven and eight tomorrow. And so I as I've been playing it. I've actually been It's weird to say about my own game, but I've been surprisingly happy with how it turned out yeah. Like I genuinely enjoyed playing it. My friends seem to be having fun as well um, there are most of the things that I would change are really little there's the element i just talked about a second ago of really highlighting things that you need players to see putting it in all caps or red just really really highlighting that stuff um that might impact a number of other games that follow it whether it's a legacy game or a campaign game one overall takeaway too is like like i said i'm I'm probably not going to do another legacy game i i I think i've had my shot at it we'll see how it goes but i would love to explore games that have ongoing narrative in the future so i am working on a, a a campaign-ish game where the decisions you make in one game impact the, the previous game, but without permanence. So as much as I value that permanence in, in Charterstone and the legacy games, uh, I'm interested in that ongoing narrative as well in, in campaign games.
1: Yeah, so you have like a save system you've kind of created to go from one game to the next?
2: Exactly, there's yeah. a save system. Um, and even in the side, the third side of the expansion, it's a, well actually I can't really talk about it, but, uh, it, <laughs> It has a has a narrative, and it has it has stuff that you unlock. Yeah, and, and so I love that you can have unlocking. I learned that from Mechs versus Minions that you can unlock new stuff, and you can also reset the game. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah, have you have you played any games like that where you you can reset stuff that you unlock?
1: Um, I mean, Time Stories in a certain way. Time Stories, yeah, does yeah, that, yeah you that's know, a perfect example. And it does yeah. that in the same technically game because like, you know you're basically right. Groundhog Day, and so like one right. game is partially a game i don't know it's kind of the way and i i've never i don't know what it is every time i play time stories i cannot just do one run and be like okay we're done like i have to finish but you know but i don't have to just kind of feel that way but anyway and so no i think it's really cool and again we're going back into with mix versus minions or what you're working on right now you're opening something cool you're opening another box right you know i get to experience this joy and happiness again and it's it's just a really cool way to uh, engage players well, yeah. cool, man. Um, do you have any advice for somebody who's like working on a legacy game or like really wanting to? Because I've had people send me emails because there's not a lot of content right now. There's not a lot of resources. There's a handful of people who have done it. There's a handful of design diaries, handful of podcasts and things like that about it. And so what would be your advice to really help somebody who's wanting to travel down that path?
2: Well, I mean, I would listen to to Rob's videos and interviews. Uh, you have the interview with him. He's, he's done a lot of content. He, listening to Rob talk is going to, let you know pretty much everything is going to it's, it's going to set your expectations for the project it will be harder than you think yeah. which i know is a generic thing to say but i think it's for a legacy game in particular it's really important to understand that um just because of the, the number of paths that conspire like you don't have control over what the players will do they're going to do things you don't expect i don't know let's see if i, I don't know if there's much i can add that rob hasn't already said i guess the one thing that i would almost suggest is that if you have the opportunity to design a legacy game that's based on an existing game, go for it. Like, it, that's it's not going to necessarily be easier, but you're going to have that foundation. Players will have that foundation going into the game. So I'm, I know JR is working on something in that realm. I'm, I'm excited to see designers do more of that. Um, as much as I wanted to make Charterstone, as much as, as excited I was about Seafall, I think legacy is a great format for games that already exist. Um, even your your Harvest Moon game, I think that could a, a farming game that ma- that carries over from game to game could be an awesome addition to the to the format. So I look forward to seeing what designers do with with that element.
1: Yeah, a scaled down Agricola with yeah. stickers instead of tiles could yeah. be interesting. You know, I don't yeah. I don't know. I think that's something that we could explore. And maybe one side you put the stickers, and the other side is always blank. You know, so you could always choose right. to just go back and play game one, so to speak. But I think that's a really cool idea, and if anybody wants to use that idea, feel free and just put my name in the rule (laughs) book, and that's all I ask. Uh, That's awesome, man. Jamie, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show again. Uh, We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about the pros and cons of leaving Kickstarter. So Jamie left Kickstarter about two years ago. That was the Scythe campaign. That was the last time. You've been on Kickstarter all you know every day, probably because you got are yeah. still putting out articles about people doing cool stuff, but that was the last campaign. and I just want to hear your thoughts on the pros and cons of of what it's been like so two years after after leaving and making that decision. And so we're gonna do that in the bonus round. Jamie, again, yeah. thanks for being here and uh, good luck with everything you got going
2: on.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the board game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing.